0: Well, welcome, everybody, to this live webcast event of the Cato Institute on economic sanctions during a pandemic. Normally, I'd be addressing the audience from behind a podium um, and on a stage. But due to the coronavirus, we are here doing this from the comfort of our homes. And I do want to thank um, Cato's events and uh, conference teams for enabling us to do this. It really would not be possible without them. I also want to remind our viewing audience that there are there is a Q&A session that will take place for most of the second half of this event, and we're taking questions for our two panelists. So you can submit your questions at any time via the web page for this event at Cato.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, where this event is being streamed, and you can use the hashtag CatoFP. So the onset of this pandemic has renewed debate over the use and potential overuse of economic sanctions as a tool of statecraft. Um, And I'll just kind of very briefly review some uh, recent chronology here uh, with regard to Iran in particular. So the Obama administration engaged in arduous, years-long negotiations with Iran and um, the other great powers, the the UN Security Council, plus Germany, uh, and came up with a, with a non-proliferation agreement, which rolled back Iran's nuclear program and imposed uh, very uh, stringent restrictions and inspections regime. And um, you know it, 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 in return, uh, sanctions were supposed to be lifted. Uh, Donald Trump campaigned against this. Uh, he vowed to tear up the deal. Um, and initially his cabinet did resist. The principles in his cabinet Did resist, um, pointing mainly to US intelligence and um, information from the International Atomic Energy Agency that goes in and inspects Iran, that Iran was in fact complying and that sanctions release should continue. Um, Trump overcame this internal resistance by May 2018 when he withdrew from the deal despite Iranian compliance, and then he moved towards a policy of what he calls maximum pressure, uh, which has uh, impose harsh sanctions on Iran, really uh, undermine their economy, and it seems to have incentivized them to act out in ways that are not all that constructive, including by making calculated violations to the Iranian nuclear deal and kind of acting out in the region. Um, seems to me, at least, the maximum pressure policy has sort of brought about exactly the set of uh, Iranian policies that uh, it was supposed to. Uh, deter or avoid uh, and you know throughout the sanctions regime there are a lot There was a lot of outcry on humanity on humanitarian grounds uh, before COVID-19 hit there were complaints that you know the the uh, completeness and the the um, the harshness of the sanctions regime was preventing much-needed medical supplies from entering the country and hampering Uh, their response to COVID, but before this, it was complaints about uh, not only the overall economic impact and how that's hurting ordinary Iranians, but also cancer patients, hemophilia patients. I mean, there were these complaints about the humanitarian impact of the sanctions uh, for a long time, but now with COVID-19, there are renewed calls for lifting these, um, or at least waiving some of them. There have been a number of open letters uh, with prominent US officials and former US officials um senators and ambassadors and secretaries of state and so on the u.n Je- uh, general secretary has also called for waiving of sanctions against countries like iran and cuba and north korea and venezuela so that they can help uh, they can manage this crisis in a way that is not impinged by uh, unnecessary sanctions and so we'll discuss the state of U.S.-Iran policy in this context, but also will broaden the discussion a bit more to address sanctions policy in general. We just uh, recently published uh, a paper at the Cato Institute on sanctions, and it reviewed the academic literature, and it turns out, well, how should I put this? Uh, academic rigor has not been kind to advocates of sanctions. Uh, they tend to be not super effective, or at least the causal mechanism here of economic pressure doesn't seem to be easily identifiable in terms of leading to the desired policy uh, on the part of the target state, um, and uh, and you know they keep being used. This paper argued primarily because it's an easy, um, low cost, uh, convenient, politically convenient way to have a policy towards something when you don't really know what else to do. But sanctions sound like a tough and smart approach. Um, Joining us in this discussion is uh, Richard Nephew and Emma Ashford. Richard Nephew is a senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy. Previously, he was the principal deputy coordinator for sanctions policy at the Department of of State, where he focused on Iran policy. Uh, So he'll have a lot to say about that. Emma Ashford is a research fellow at the Cato Institute and focuses a lot on uh energy and geopolitics and uh definitely relevant for the middle east um so richard uh why don't you start us off and then we'll move on to emma uh how do you view sanctions in the context of the current pandemic um and also uh with iran in particular and then maybe if you can broaden it to sanctions use in general
1: sure very happy to and and thanks very much for having me i appreciate the opportunity to talk with both of you and then uh, obviously, with, with your audience. Now, I think that the, the simplest and most straightforward statement that, that needs to be made about sanctions in the pandemic is, you know, sanctions didn't cause the pandemic, of course, uh, but they are uh, absolutely making it worse, at least in the Iran circumstance uh, and potentially in other sanctioned countries. Uh, there are, of course, exemptions to sanctions that can also normally uh, facilitate humanitarian trade. And in fact, in the U.S., ever since the 2000 Trade Sanctions Reform Act, as well as various different exemptions built into executive orders, um, there have been ways of engaging in uh, uh, trade with uh, sanctioned jurisdictions and providing humanitarian uh, goods, whether that's food, medicine, medical devices. And in fact, in the Obama administration, we uh, sought several times to broaden the extent of the uh, exemptions with regard to medicine uh, with respect to Iran. The big issue, though, is that in a normal environment, that might be enough when you have got normal supply chains, normal business activity, uh, when you have normal banking and and normal manufacturing and those sorts of things. In the context of the pandemic, uh, all of the difficulties and problems created by sanctions are exacerbated with respect to the countries that are uh, currently under uh, sanctions. And Iran is, is of course, one of the most significant uh, cases in point. This is in part because of course sanctions intend to interfere with normal trade. Uh, Their objective is to make normal trade and normal business activity uh, much more difficult and much more complicated. That is part of the way in which sanctions can be uh, effective. Uh, By making normal trade much more difficult, much more uh, complex, Uh, And uh, much more costly, uh, sanctions aim to persuade companies, banks, and businesses in general to avoid engaging with the sanctioned jurisdictions. And um, quite naturally, in the current environment, this means that Iran is having a much more difficult time importing items that it might otherwise uh, wish to uh, uh, obtain, especially with regard to uh, humanitarian goods. But it's not simply just because of the fact that sanctions do preclude, as a matter of law, some business ties. It's also that they change the business cost-benefit equations uh, that, that companies are operating under. So if a company would normally say, look, it costs a certain amount to engage in business with this particular country. We have to add a certain amount for compliance you know to deal with sanctions issues that have nothing to do with the problematic relationship. Maybe they deal with uh, uh, blood diamond trafficking or maybe they deal with terrorism, financing, money laundering, those sorts of things. For sanctioned jurisdictions, those costs have to go uh, up a lot more then they have to look and see what are the advantages, what are the opportunities that potentially can come about as a result of doing business. And in places where you've got uh, a heavy sanctions load, where a lot of the sectors in economy are under that sanctions load, that's where I think you start to see a, a very clear mismatch because the incentives are quite low, the costs are quite high. And when you put that together, it's very hard for a uh, responsible business to make the decision to continue uh, uh, engaging in uh, trade. And so the result, of course, is that you have undermined the incentives to remain engaged with Iran more generally, uh, especially with respect to banks. If the only kinds of trade and business activity that are going to be permitted are humanitarian spaces, um, those may not be sufficient cost, sufficient value rather, to justify continuing to have uh, the uh, business relationships. And so now I think the problem is that in the context of a pandemic, reconnecting Iran to be able to engage in some of this humanitarian trade without active U.S. government intervention is pretty hard. Uh, Comfort simply does not exist in terms of doing business with Iran. In fact, the State Department just made that a lot more difficulty uh, by putting out a fact sheet that said that humanitarian trade with Iran is potentially a scam ridden uh, activity in which uh, companies and, and businesses and banks are going to be taken advantage of by the IRGC and by other uh, problematic parts of the Iranian uh, business community and government. When you add that to the fact that there simply is no business interest and incentives, you you can see part of the reason why it's very difficult for Iran to be able to obtain the items that it wishes to obtain, even if legally uh, it would be able to do so. Now, there are solutions to this problem beyond just simply suspend sanctions. And I should hasten to note that people suggesting this are not just simply trying to engage in an attempt to claw back the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and get that back into place, although I'll say I would gladly sign up for such a thing uh, right now. Frankly, I don't even think suspending U.S. sanctions would be the most efficient way of getting aid and support inside of Iran. If you just simply suspended sanctions for the duration of the crisis, uh, you potentially create the same sorts of compliance headaches and burdens that already existed where companies don't know where their lines are. They don't know how long the crisis will remain. And so they would be a little unsure as to exactly uh, how long they can engage in trade, what are the dimensions of that engagement. I actually think that a much more structured approach in which the United States engages with the corporate sector and with Iran to facilitate specific transactions and specific uh, uh, transaction patterns, where you have certain shippers and certain manufacturers and others involved, is a much more efficient way of of doing this and a much more efficient way of getting uh, uh, assistance and and support into uh, Iran. Um, I do think as well that um, this would help you uh, as a U.S. government and more generally to sidestep the issue of the JCPOA and to ensure that the primary focus of what you're doing is uh, that of uh, providing humanitarian assistance in the midst of a pandemic. Now, of course, there are five broader implications of failing to do so. The first and potentially most important is that you potentially make the pandemic uh, much worse. Uh, The fact of the matter is Iran is a primary vector for uh, the the transfer of the pandemic to other places in the Middle East, uh, and potentially to uh, other parts of Central Asia. And of course, if that were to take place, it potentially undermines a lot of the efforts being done now to restrain the spread of the virus. It also, of course, reinforces the Iranian domestic propaganda machine about aims in U.S. policy. And I think that um, the Iranians right now have had ample indications the U.S. is not intended to try and engage in a serious negotiation, but is instead aimed at uh, regime change. And I think this uh, ties to my second point, or my third point, rather, that undermines the concept that max pressure is even intended for a legitimate effort at diplomacy, which is going to complicate future diplomacy for Iran and the United States, regardless of who wins the presidential election Uh, coming up in November. And this is a fourth main point. I I think that uh, there are many who right now who think that if Biden wins, there'll be a restart of negotiations. It's possible that if Trump wins, there'll be an attempt to restart negotiations. All of this would be complicated by a humanitarian catastrophe that we're doing very little to try and uh, address. And last, of course, there's the broader implications for the U.S. ability to use sanctions in the future. I think a lot of countries around the world are looking at us right now to see, are we prepared to demonstrate that our sanctions are not intended to have a humanitarian impact? And they're seeing us fail that test. And I think that ultimately will make it harder to get countries to join uh, with us when we pursue sanctions campaigns in places where they are uh, seriously needed, where they will be a complement to diplomacy as part of a broader uh, strategic attempt to address uh, issues that exist. And I think that would be both a problem in terms of how US administrations can deal with future uh, international issues, uh, but potentially a very dangerous one if that meant that our options would be far more limited in future conflict scenarios.
0: Okay, thanks, Richard. Um, I want to remind everybody that you can submit questions at any time on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, or on the Cato.org webpage. Uh, the early ones are uh, having getting precedence. Just, just FYI. Um, Emma, take it away.
2: Hey, thanks to everybody for uh, for watching this. Uh, Welcome to my basement. It's a strange new world. Um, I'm gonna try and not uh, repeat a lot of stuff Richard says, but there's a, there's a fairly similar flavor to the remarks that I prepared for today. Um, so I see sanctions during this pandemic um, as, as sort of indicative of the broader problems that we're having with sanctions. Um, so John already provided a, um, a a very brief overview of, of sanctions um, as, as they are today, as they've been used in recent years. Um, but I wanna make just a couple of quick points. Um, so the first is that sanctions are somewhat better than they used to be. If you go back to the 1990s and we're talking about comprehensive embargoes of a state, something like um, the sanctions that we put on Iraq under Saddam Hussein, those had terrible humanitarian impact. um, And today's targeted sanctions that are mostly financial in nature tend to be a little better even on on humanitarian issues. Um, Second point is we use sanctions for for a lot of different things. Um, So, Uh, Again, Iran tends to come up a lot, and that's a case where we're talking about a state whose behavior we want to change. Um, But we also use sanctions for anti-terrorism, interdicting terror financing, for human rights or pro-democracy issues, um, for trying to prevent the illegal arms trade. We use them in places like Syria when there's civil wars. Um, And a specialist a couple of years back actually referred to sanctions as the tool of first resort. Uh, for the for the US government and that ha- that is in many ways what they've become um as as John pointed out sanctions lie between doing nothing and using force Um, And that means that even if they have negative implications, they tend to be um, more palatable, uh, more acceptable to policymakers. And so we tend to see them used in a lot of crises rather than than other policy tools. Um, We saw uh, increasing usage um, initially under the George W. Bush administration, particularly under the Obama administration. Um, In both cases, those were generally tethered to policy goals. Um, The the negotiation of the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal would not have been possible without a good multilateral sanctions initiative. Um, And so uh, I would perhaps take issue with John's claim that sanctions never work. They do work occasionally in certain circumstances, Um, but it is very true that there are some nasty side effects to sanctions. So the policy paper that that Cato put out just a few weeks back from Richard Hanania, um, it was talking about sanctions and how they impact different countries. Um, I believe the title was Ineffective, Immoral, Politically Inconvenient, or Politically Convenient, um, Why Sanctions Aren't Necessarily the Best Tool. Um, And in that paper he gives the example of Syria. Um, And while it's very difficult to disentangle deaths in the civil war from deaths caused by sanctions, the facts are that U.S. sanctions substantially worsened the Syrian economy in that case. Um, And so his point is that we need to be aware that there are these side effects. Um, So under the Trump administration, we've seen... Uh, a massive amount of new sanctions. They, they really are treating this as as the tool of first resort to be used in all situations. Particular targets include Iran and Venezuela um, are perhaps the two most obvious. Um, but there's four big trends um, that I wanted to sort of draw our attention to before coming back to to the coronavirus situation. Um, so the first is that under the Trump administration we've seen an increasing use of sanctions against allies And the increasing use of sanctions applied in an extraterritorial sense. That is to say sanctions used applying U.S. law to companies that are foreign companies. Um, This has been done before, um, but typically, so if you take the Obama administration's negotiations prior to the JCPOA, um, they worked with European companies sort of rather than just imposing our will. on on other countries and their companies. Um, The Trump administration has uh, largely relied on extraterritoriality to force other countries and their companies to do what we want. Um, And this has occasioned substantial amount of backlash. Um, So in recent weeks, we've seen the first successful use of the INSTEX mechanism. That's a way for Europe and Iran to barter with one another um, and to trade. In this case, it was humanitarian trade, which is technically allowed, but it offers the opportunity for other forms of trade. Um, second trend that I, that I want to sort of draw attention to, um, the Trump administration has pursued a policy against Iran that they described as maximum pressure. The same language has also been used for North Korea. Um, we haven't seen that language necessarily used in Venezuela, but the approach has been pretty much the same. And what this really means at heart is that the sanctions on these countries are largely untethered from any concrete policy goals. So sanctions work best when they are narrowly focused um, and have a specific narrowly scoped policy goal in mind. In the case of Iran, in the case of Venezuela, in the case of North Korea, to some extent, what we are seeing is sanctions focused on something like regime change that is almost impossible to achieve. Um, And we're also in many of these cases seeing the diminishing return of sanctions. Um, The initial time that you put sanctions on a country, they can be quite effective, but once you've piled more and more and more sanctions on, they become increasingly less effective. And so we're in the situation where policymakers continue to add sanctions to Iran, um, there's nothing left to sanction effectively. So a third trend um, that I want to call attention to Um, increasing humanitarian problems with sanctions. Um, This has always been somewhat of an issue um, and it's pretty difficult to untangle the impact of sanctions uh, on humanitarian issues versus the impact of bad governance or civil war or any of a number of other factors that might be at play. Um, But as Richard described really well, um, things like food and medicine imports um, even though they're technically excluded from the sanctions, um, they can be affected by the fact that we shut down trade. Um, So if your banks in a country like Iran or North Korea are barred from trading with other banks, from transferring money to them, it becomes very difficult for companies to buy food. How can hospitals seek to buy medical equipment if they can't actually transfer money Um, And that's the the problem that INSTEX is designed to to resolve, um, but it exists in a much broader variety of cases. Um, So then a fourth, uh, less less a trend and just a point that I would make about sanctions under the Trump administration. Um, None of these sanctions are working. Um, Sanctions generally do fail. The academic literature is quite clear on that. They succeed only in very limited cases, when we are seeking a very specific policy change, when we apply appropriate pressure, um, and when we're willing to make concessions to do so. 90%, 99% of what the Trump administration is doing with sanctions does not meet that bar. And so the sanctions that they have put on over the last three years, or they have added to are not working. So, I raise those points not so much to sort of give a general lecture on sanctions, but because I I think that it's important to understand that the problems we're seeing today with sanctions during the coronavirus are not just the result of the disease. It's the fact that our sanctions policy already had substantive problems with it. Um, The pandemic is making it far more difficult and, and is making these general problems much more salient even than they were before. Um, and so, uh, you know, Richard did a, did a wonderful job of talking about the humanitarian impacts. Um, even though the humanitarian trade is technically excluded, we're seeing that countries like Iran or Venezuela or others uh, are not able to obtain things like medical equipment. Um, Even outside of sanctions, we're seeing things like the U.S. government um, stepping in to prevent uh, both Iran and Venezuela from getting uh, loans from the International Monetary Fund. Um, And this is in a situation where Iran, for example, has a death toll from coronavirus twice that of the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, which was a a massive cultural uh, scar on that country. So we are talking about genuine privation here. Sanctions are making it very difficult um, to actually resolve the crisis. Um, Another problem that I think the coronavirus brings to the fore here is the question of whether uh, these impacts are truly side effects or not. Um, And it comes to what I've started to think of as the increasing um, embargoization of targeted sanctions. Um, so, the idea that targeted sanctions in a lot of cases start very small and narrowly focused on government elites um, or on specific companies and then end up expanded over time to include more and more parts of an economy. Um, and at the end of the day, if the goal is, um, in the case of Iran, say, to just cause widespread economic pain to force the people of that state to say, rise up against their government, as the Trump administration has, has suggested, um, it's not clear to me that the humanitarian impacts are a side effect rather than than the actual impact of the sanctions. So we need to be clear about what we're doing here. If this is what we are using sanctions for, um, we need to be aware that they're causing a lot of pain to innocent people. Um, and this also brings me to another trend, which is the idea that sanctions, appears to be increasingly used as a form of punishment rather than as a tool of coercion. Um, So the the idea that the Trump administration talks a lot about sanctions um, and about their ability to cause economic pain and don't really have very clear ideas for how those sanctions could be lifted, for how governments could get out from under them, um, for how we actually achieve policy goals with them. Um, So I think the pandemic is sort of uh, increasing all of these trends, perhaps accelerating some of them, even things like the use of sanctions against allies, um, but they're all underlying problems that were already there and they will persist into the next administration, whether it's another Trump administration or whether it's a democratic administration. Um, So I'm gonna wrap up in just a second, but before I do, um, I also wanted to to throw one more topic into the mix um, because there's been increasing talk, uh, particularly in right-wing media, about the idea of sanctioning China. Um, that they should compensate us for the government's missteps as as they relate to coronavirus. Um, and there's a there you know there's a there's a conspiracy theory version of this in which China created a bioweapon, and and that's not true. Um, but there's also a version of this in which. Um, conservatives argue that because China covered up the initial extent of the virus hid death tolls um, that they are in many ways complicit uh, for the, the spread of the pandemic afterwards and economic sanctions is one of the options that's being suggested here um, things like targeted sanctions on individuals, asset freezes for senior communist party officials the seizure of Chinese government companies abroad as part of the Belt and Road Initiative um, and most of this is being touted in the name of promoting um, transparency on public health initiatives. Um, So we've got Tom Cotton, for example, proposing one such uh, sanctions program, um, which would be kind of a Magnitsky Act, which is Russia-focused sanctions. But in this case, it would be for China, it would be on public health. Um, But in a lot of cases, what we're seeing is just politicians that already wanted to impose these sanctions on China for human rights issues in places like Xinjiang, for um, issues related to Huawei and espionage, corporate espionage. Um, So these are sort of the same sanctions proposals that have been made before coming out of the woodwork again, in this case suggested as a response to the coronavirus. So that's a policy debate that I think we're gonna see more of over the next few months. Um, So I'm gonna wrap up there and pass it back to John and I look forward to your questions.
0: Well, thank you, guys. Thank you both. Um, uh, you guys addressed many of the, some of the questions that had already come in, so that's good. Um, quickly, to uh, Mark Fitzpatrick from IISS um, asked about this, uh, these reports from earlier in the month where uh, the US government is planning to veto that IMF loan to Iran. Um, if either of you want to expand a bit on that, please do. I'll slip in a second question right before, um, which is, uh, these are kind of related. So first of all, a, a, this is from Anonymous. NGOs are sta- saying OFAC's licensing process is unworkable, slow, creates unnecessary restrictions. How does this square with Mr. Nephew's comment that a structured approach to facilitate transferred transfers would be more efficient than suspending sanctions for a certain period of time? So, you, uh, Richard, that second one is clearly for you, but either of you can uh, take a whack at the first one. Sure. On, if you want, I'll,
1: I'll give go. it a go. Um, and then I'll turn things over to Emma. Um, so, you know, first on the vetoing an IMF loan, um, my understanding is that the terms under which this loan is being requested um, make it very difficult um, for uh, the uh, United States. To veto it. You know, under uh, some of the voting rules that the IMF operates under, we have uh, effectively a, a individual uh, majority and, and, and veto um, based on the amount of money that we've contributed and the number of voting rights that we have. My understanding is that is not, in fact, the case with respect to the emergency loan request vehicle that's been made here. And so consequently, um, while we do have a large number of votes and a large number of shares in which we can vote, um, other countries have as well. And so I think that um, rather than being in a position to veto uh, from a kind of strictly you know, normal usage of that, of that term. Uh, it, it's more that the U.S. is trying to block it, probably by seeking other vote uh, holders uh, to join with us in blocking it. My understanding, though, is that the uh, part of the delay is that the IMF itself is still uh, assessing the situation, assessing the request, and so forth. Um, and so that that might also be part of the reason why uh, it hasn't actually uh, come for a formal decision and been either uh, given a yes or or a no. And again, that's that's current as of this morning. Um, in terms of the licensing process, look, I, I think a couple of things are, are relevant here. Uh, first... Um, part of what I am suggesting actually gets you away from having to go after some of the individual license uh, requirements, right, and to try and bridge the gap between what would be a normal specific license request where you go to OFAC and say, I'd like to do the following things with the following people and uh, we'll be doing in the following time frame. Um, And instead, uh, you know, try and get closer to a general license where if certain facts match certain patterns, then business is is considered uh, okay uh, from the standpoint of OFAC. And the idea would be that you would have uh, what's been sometimes called a white channel, what uh, sometimes has been called a series of comfort letters, but that you would identify in advance banks that are seen as having sufficient due diligence requirements uh, and screening, same thing with insurers and shippers and manufacturers and others, that could become a pipeline through which aid uh, could be directed uh, into Iraq. Um, That's not going to eliminate uh, some of the delays with regard to specific licenses, uh, some of which are caused by the complexity of doing business in Iran, some of which are caused by the complexity of doing business in a coronavirus quarantine in Washington, where OFAC workers are working from home, uh, at least in large numbers, um, and making uh, doing license reviews much more complicated. Um, But it would uh, be something that potentially could complement the specific licensing process and allow for at least some degree of support and assistance to move uh, in, in a easier fashion than what is presently the case. And it's worth noting, of course, that, you know, the time required to set that up uh, may also be considerable. you got to find banks insurers and shippers and others that are in a position to do this uh, sort of business. Um, and so that's why it's incumbent on uh, Treasury and the U.S. government more generally to get going on it soon.
2: Yeah, so um, I will just add on the, the first question. Um, so the IMF is still considering the the loan to Iran, although, like most people, I'm hearing rumors that the US is trying to shut that down. Um, on the, in the case of Venezuela, though, the the loan has actually been rejected. Um, the official reason was that the um, that there's no clarity on who the Venezuelan government is at this point. Um, but again, there's some fairly strong sort of US influence there, given it's the US. That sort of backing the um, the potential government of Juan Guaido against the one uh, against the, the government existing of, of Nicolas Maduro. So um, slightly different situations, um, but in both cases um, there there has been U.S. influence to try and prevent this, if if not an outright veto.
0: Um, another question from an anonymous uh, questioner asks: How might sanctions affect America's position atop the international economy? specifically the dominance of the U.S. dollar? Are other countries expressing greater interest in alternative economic arrangements that can reduce their exposure to U.S. sanctions? Um, I want to fit in another one as well, Uh, so keep that one in mind. Also, let's see here. Oh, uh, let's ask uh, another anonymous question, which is, do either of you see any chance that the Trump administration will respond to this growing pressure to... Change its approach to sanctions, at the very least, for the duration of this crisis. Uh, Richard, you can go first, and then Emma.
1: Okay, sure. Um, so, you know, on the the, the last question first. No, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't see there's any real chance of them changing their approach. I mean, I, I think that uh, there is some uh, remote possibility that uh, the crisis gets far, far, far worse. Uh, and they changed their approach. Uh, to me, I think that's pretty unlikely uh, given the cast of characters who are running the government right now uh, and the, the fact that we only uh, have another uh, six odd months of the first term of the Trump administration, maybe the only term of the Trump administration. So I, I don't think that we should expect to see much of a uh, change. In terms of affecting the use of the dollar, and I, I'd be very interested in Emma's uh, thoughts on this as well. Um, Look, I, I think that um, the dollar is an interesting element of what I think is a much bigger problem. Um, I, I think that the, the dollar as a reserve currency is still going to be uh, a very powerful instrument for the U.S. and a very powerful instrument for international finance, uh, because it's hard to see a replacement stepping up that people feel comfortable in. And I actually think if you look at uh, recent uh, uh, you know, uh, turmoil affecting markets, Uh, You can see uh, that there is still a general desire to uh, get into the dollar. There's still a desire to get into treasuries when crises happen. Sometimes there's weirdness attached to that. Sometimes that's not as comfortable, especially when the context in dealing with the pandemic of a massive stimulus that's being proposed. But but still, um, you know, people weren't uh, rushing out to buy a whole bunch of yen, at least not that I saw. And I think that that speaks to the fundamental of, of the value of the dollar. I think the bigger problem is uh, the possibility of de-risking from the U.S. altogether, and the emergence of alternative uh, mechanisms for engaging in transactions. By alternative, I don't mean replacing the dollar and replacing the United States, but rather that people come up with ways in which they don't have to transact through the U.S. financial system in which to do business. Uh, they avoid supply chains that are wholly dependent on the U.S., um, and they avoid having banking operations that have to funnel transactions through uh, New York to avoid the US jurisdiction. and All that comes with potential real costs to the US both economically as well as geostrategically. Because of course part of the reason why sanctions work is because people want to do business here. If they find ways of protecting themselves against the risk they're perceiving, because I agree with them very much that. US sanctions are just on a, a massive trajectory up right now. Um, you know, I think that uh, that ultimately will will have an effect on our ability to use those tools and certainly our ability to take advantage of our uh, economic position that over the last 50, 60 years has been of, of considerable benefit for us.
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, so I very much agree with, with Richard on the de-dollarization question. Um, you know, if that is a trend, if that is something that happens, it's going to be on a very long time scale. We've really only seen um, a couple of things that suggest countries are even really considering it as an option. Um, there was an oil swap between Russia and China a few years back um, that happened in RMB rather than in dollars. That's really about the only sort of major example I can I can even think of off the top of my head. And so this is, this is something that's not really happening. Um, but the de-risking uh, trend that Richard talks about is is a much bigger one. Um, and so, so the risk is is less, I think that companies seek to avoid the US dollar that, that it um, that they don't want to do business in it. and it's much more that they come up with these very creative strategies to work around being exposed to the US market. Um, and it's a long term issue. So um, in, in the case of of something like say, a bank in Europe, Um, that decides that it wants to do business with a sanctioned entity abroad, Um, there are eventually going to be ways um, like the INSTEX mechanism, which is effectively a barter mechanism um, where these companies and banks will try and work around it. Um, And what concerns me is, is not countries like China or North Korea or Iran finding ways around these sanctions. What really concerns me is the fact that we are now seeing particularly European countries Looking for ways to shield their, their companies from US sanctions. So this isn't us talking about a handful of rogue states. This isn't even us talking about, you know, great power competition with China. This is us talking about NATO allies. And we are applying sanctions extraterritorially in a way that makes companies in France and Germany so angry they go to their government that makes the French and German governments try and find a way to shield their companies to work against U.S. sanctions. Um, And so I, I am far more worried about the risks that are coming from our allies than from countries we would typically consider as actually under sanctions. Um, And I think the Trump administration's willingness to put tariffs and sanctions and and all sorts of stuff on allies um, without considering those consequences, that's where the risk of this sort of long-term trend really grows.
0: Very good, I'll slip in two more. Uh, One from Sina Azodi. Uh, to either of you. What is your response to the Department of State's constant line that with regard to Iran, food and medicine are not sanctioned? Uh, second one from Ashley here. How would you respond to the argument that the regime's continued spending on proxy forces is evidence that the government has the resources needed to secure humanitarian good goods if, it's, if it prioritizes that kind of spending? Emma, why don't you go first this time, then Richard?
2: Sure, yeah, so, so I'll take the second question and leave the first one for you, perhaps. Um, so uh, in terms of the, the Trump administration, um, they have taken this line with a number of countries that, um, that it is not the, that it's not the fault of the US, that it's not the fault of the Trump administration that people are suffering humanitarian impacts because if these governments just changed their behavior and spent money elsewhere, um, people wouldn't be suffering. Um, and on some level, right, that is that is a fair criticism. It is it is not just the fault of the U.S. that people in Iran are unable to access medical aid. Um, but it is partly the fault of the U.S. and partly the fault of U.S. sanctions. And our sanctions are making things worse. Um, and so I think um, we're also deluding ourselves. If, if we think that that kind of statement basically removes any culpability from us. Um, and even if you think that this is not just a moral argument, um, and you're talking in terms of just pure cost benefit to the US um, during the pandemic, uh, it's not in American interests for us to um, let this virus rage out of control in a country that could potentially then spread it elsewhere. So, I mean, I'm not convinced by the moral argument, and I think the Trump administration is also completely ignoring the what is actually good for us debate.
1: Yeah. And let me say, I would agree very much with everything you just said, Emma, with regard to the second question. I, I, I think um, part of the problem, too, with that as an argument is it automatically starts bringing in, um, you know, who, who are you to determine what's a good policy for us? Right. You know, I remember back in the 2004 2005 time frame, we were uh, on a much less controversial matter. We were suggesting that Iran's nuclear program was a waste of money that instead that they should uh, just, you know, uh, capture the gases that they're flaring, uh, you know, when they produce natural gas and they wouldn't need a nuclear program because it'd be much more useful for their economy, et cetera. That, that all may have been true. The response that we got out of both the Iranians as well as the broader national community was, and, <laughs> you know, that, that's a policy choice that a sovereign country can uh, potentially make. And so from from that standpoint, it's it may be a useful talking point inside of Washington, Um, whether or not it is persuasive to anyone else, I think, is a completely secondary point. I think it just merits uh, being considered. On the first look, I I think that the fundamental point is um, the Trump administration is telling the truth when they say that food and medicine are not subject to U.S. sanctions. That's true. That is absolutely true Uh, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, are you allowed to export those goods from the United States or anywhere else to Iran? Yes. Can you engage with banks to do that? Yes. Can you engage with shipping companies to do that? Yes. Can you engage with insurers to do that? Yes. All those things are legal. Um, All those uh, transactions can happen right now under U.S. law. There's nothing else that needs to be done. Um, Utterly immaterial to the point which is, uh, are U.S. sanctions making it impossible for legal transactions to take place? Yes, uh, they absolutely are. And that's because, again, we've undermined the business case for having any kind of trade ties with Iran, with banks maintaining any kind of correspondent banking account relationships with Iran, with ships going to Iran, with insurers being prepared to insure goods going to Iran, uh, etc., etc. And um, some of this comes from a not unreasonable uh, response to what Iran itself uh, does in terms of its sanctions evasion. The fact of the matter is the IRGC and others do engage in widespread sanctions evasion. They use false bills of lading, and they use uh, misleading uh, you know, uh, from companies to be able to engage in illicit transactions and so forth, thus creating a massive compliance burden, which is also partly their responsibility. Um, but the simple reality is that US sanctions still Uh, notwithstanding all of that, make it impossible for most companies and certainly anyone other than the biggest ones to engage in this sort of of trade. And again, in a non-pandemic situation, that might be something that you could have a debating discussion about, uh, whether or not it's something that Iran needs to do more to solve or whether or not the United States needs to. In a pandemic where you've had widespread economic dislocation, where you've had widespread prevention of humanitarian goods from getting in, where you've got fights over uh, who's going to be able to get PPE equipment and other such things in, uh, it it adds up to an insurmountable set of obstacles. And so from that standpoint, the question then is less are sanctions responsible and more of is there a way in which sanctions can both still be directed at their uh, intention, which is to undermine Iran's ability to engage in illicit conduct, while at the same time addressing a humanitarian problem, especially... For an administration that has said that part of the reason why we're doing all this is because we stand with the Iranian people. And I think this is what makes the Trump administration's positions on this right now so counterproductive. Um, They are saying that not only is there no problem, it is not our fault if there is a problem. And uh, the Iranians bear all the blame for all. Well, okay, that might be a satisfactory set of talking points instead of Washington, but there are very real world complications that come along with that as a set of positions. And I think that the administration is not thinking creatively or long term enough about what it can and should do to try and address the humanitarian consequences that are a natural byproduct of the sanctions regime that we have created.
0: So this will be a a slight shift in in topic, but uh, Tom Brooks from GWU uh, asks a question that a lot of people are asking, which is uh, sanctions on North Korea. Have they been effective? Um, Have they yielded policy victories? Um, And what is the status of them right now? Richard, maybe you want to start.
1: Sure, happy to. Um, so this is where actually I, I'll, I luckily get the opportunity to come back to your opening presentation uh, and, and uh, talk a little bit about the overall effectiveness of, of sanctions as a, as a tool. Look, I, I think um, if we put our uh, viewpoint that uh, sanctions are only effective if the underlying strategy is effective, then I think it's easy to say that sanctions on North Korea have been a failure. But is the problem the strategy and our objectives or is the problem the tool that's being used? And I think the the problem with sanctions over the course of the last 20 or 30 years, we could even make an argument uh, much longer, uh, has been that we have confused strategy with tool and tool with strategy. Sanctions only work when they are part of a multi-tool approach taken by a government. Where the uh, U.S. in this case um, is engaging in diplomatic activity, is using uh, pressure to create leverage for diplomacy, potentially a threat of military action to create additional uh, pressure, um, is looking creatively at uh, potential negotiated solutions and incentive structures, etc. That is an integrated holistic strategy that aims to address a particular problem. We're not doing that. In many cases, instead, what we're doing is simply applying sanctions and then essentially hoping that the outcome after that is uh, is something that we uh, view as positive. The other problem is that we oftentimes, in my view, uh, identify our objectives as things that are wholly unrealistic or uh, may have been once upon a time realistic, but have since become not so. North Korea, to my mind, is a perfect case in point. Uh, 20 years ago, it may have been a realistic objective that we will get North Korea to abandon nuclear weapons and we will use sanctions pressure to coerce them to go into negotiations to achieve that. That may have been a reasonable set of objectives for a national strategy. Um, It's hard to see how credible that is at present. Um, It's certainly the case that Kim Jong-un has prioritized nuclear weapons as part of his national strategic doctrine. Certainly he has said that he'd be prepared to negotiate in furtherance of denuclearization of the Korean peninsula. Uh, I don't know of any uh, Korea scholar who thinks that he believes he means to do that first uh, or certainly as part of a near-term approach to addressing the problem. So because our objective is uh, not terribly credible and because our overall strategy is not using all the various different aspects of national power in a constructive way what we get left with is our sanctions bludgeoning the North Koreans sufficiently that they're prepared to make the sweeping concessions uh, that uh, we want them to make. And that's where you have to evaluate sanctions performance. And I think here, while uh, we can also see that sanctions have underperformed in large part because of evasion uh, by some of the very same security council members uh, that voted in favor of measures like China and Russia. And so all, all that adds up to, have sanctions yielded policy victory in North Korea? Absolutely not. Um, is this the fault of sanctions? Maybe partially because they're not generating the leverage you need, but I actually think the bigger problem is our objective is wrong and our uh, overall strategy is not uh, nearly comprehensive or uh, inclusive enough of all the various uh, tools and attributes of US national power.
0: Very good, Emma, we have a few minutes. I don't know if you wanna have the last word
2: well I was just going to add a couple of points to that so um, so I'm not a North Korea specialist so I will I will restrain myself from making particular remarks on that but i I do think um, one thing that, that we see in the North Korean case and we've seen it in a couple of other cases um, is is also the, the increasing problem that we we can't figure out how to lift sanctions we don't know how to get out of sanctions once we've got into them um and so in in the north korean case um you know again we've been piling sanctions on them for for years now um in theory um, as Richard says, we would have this uh, I hate the phrase whole of government approach, but we would we would at least have an approach that used different government agencies and we had diplomacy and we had sanctions and and you know, they worked together. you know we would we would put the sanctions on. we would hope that they would have some effect. We would negotiate to try and lift them. Um, and if you look at the North Korea situation over the last few years, what what we see is that, to some extent, that that almost seems like that's what the North Koreans thought was happening uh, when Donald Trump set up these um, conferences, uh, you know, with, uh, with with him directly in Singapore and elsewhere. Um, you know, Kim Jong-un came into those meetings prepared to talk about, you know, sanctions relief and what would they do to get some sanctions relief. Now, what he showed up with, as I understand, was not a particularly good offer, um, but he showed up prepared to negotiate for those things. Uh, Donald Trump showed up and thought he was just there to have a conversation and to discuss uh, Kim Jong-un giving up his nukes. Um, so some of that is a, is a Trump administration problem, right? It's the, the craziness that is this administration. Um, but some of that's a broader problem with US sanctions policy, right? That we are not actually willing, once sanctions have been in place for a set period of time, um, to actually make the concession that is Lifting sanctions in exchange for some concession from the other side. Um, you see this uh, in the debates over Iran in the last few years when the JCPOA was being negotiated. We see people um, criticizing the deal and saying, well, you know, the Obama administration didn't get everything that we wanted from the sanctions, so the deal was a failure. That's not really how negotiations and diplomacy work. Um, we see it with Russia where the sanctions um, on Russia, some of them state that, you know, Russia would have to give up uh, its seizure of Crimea, pretty unrealistic. Um, we have other sanctions on Russia, particularly the, the Katsa Act that Congress passed, that as, as far as I can tell does not actually have a condition for lifting sanctions. Um, And so in all of these cases, sanctions become less a tool of future negotiation and more a tool of, of, as Richard said, bludgeoning another country. Um, But it's not clear what we're actually getting for that bludgeoning. Uh, And so I I think the North Korea case is just one example of, of, again, this is just another phenomenon that's really problematic with the way we're approaching sanctions policy today.
0: Well, I want to thank both of our guests. Thank you, Richard, and thank you, Emma. This was a fantastic and informative discussion. Um, we had a lot of questions come in, and I apologize that we could not get to all of them. Uh, for anyone who missed a minute or the entire thing, uh, the video of this, uh, this event will be available on cato.org later today, so look for it there. Thank you both for joining me, and uh, until next time.